0: Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to The Lead from the Hard Podcast. For at least the past 50 years, business leaders across the world have commonly believed that the sole responsibility of a company is to maximize shareholder and owner profits, and even if that meant skirting ethical rules, damaging the environment, or harming employees. Economist Milton Friedman advanced this idea in 1970, and sadly, it has endured ever since. But late last summer, 181 CEOs of the largest global organization signaled a shift away from this thinking declaring that a shareholder-only focus had the unintended consequences of producing unsustainable income inequality in addition to abuses of workers and society as a whole, Business Roundtable Chairman Jamie Dimon announced that he and his fellow CEOs had committed to leading their organizations for the benefit of all stakeholders going forward. And what this meant is that the interests of customers, communities, employees, and shareholders would now be on equal footing. Now, as you might imagine, many investors weren't pleased by the Business Roundtable's pledge and instinctively saw the move as having a significant and negative impact on their future returns. And according to my guest today, London Business School finance professor, Alex Edmonds, shareholders have long been conditioned to believe that the value any company produces is a fixed pie And so the only way to retain the largest slice of the pie for themselves is to ensure the size of the pie other stakeholders get remains small. Said another way, investors hold the belief that they are in effect the enemy of all the other stakeholders. And if you give more to others, then they now will expect to get less. But in his new inspiring and wonderfully researched book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, Alex introduces a far more enlightened and innovative mindset. The idea that the size of the company pies are not fixed at all. And when all members of an organization work together bound by a common purpose and focus on the long-term, they actually create shared value in a way that enlarges the slices of everyone. And this includes shareholders, workers, customers, suppliers, the environment, communities, and even taxpayers. So I'm especially excited to introduce you to Alex and to discuss his brilliant blueprint for the future of business and the future of workplace leadership, really. Alex is truly one of the most remarkable people I've ever had on as a guest. So please bear with me through this slightly longer than normal introduction. Here's just a quick list of his accomplishments. Alex is a graduate of Oxford University and earned a Ph.D. in finance from the MIT Sloan School as a Fulbright Scholar. He soon became one of the youngest professors to ever earn tenure at the Wharton Business School before he turned 30. And he's spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, at Parliament and on the TED stage. And when I was writing my book a few years ago, I knew I needed some compelling financial analysis to help validate my lead from the heart philosophy. And by an incredible stroke of luck, I happened to see that a finance professor had literally days earlier mathematically proven that the company's name to Fortune Magazine's best companies to work for list produced sustainably greater shareholder returns compared to their peer firms and I immediately reached out to Alex and interviewed him at the time and included his study results in my book. And since then, his remarkable research has become famous all over the world. So tipping you off in advance, that this is going to be one of the most energizing discussions you're ever going to hear. Allow me to extend a very, very warm welcome to Alex Edmonds.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's great to be on the show.
0: Thank you for doing this. It's great to reconnect with you. And I absolutely loved your book and really looking forward to digging into it because I think there's some real breakthrough ideas here. And I can't always say that, but I love saying that when I have a guest who brings insight, that just challenges the way we've traditionally thought things. So... Let's get to it. At the beginning of your book, you remind us of the profound harm that the Great Recession caused. In your book, you write that 9 million Americans lost their jobs and 10 million lost their homes. So ignoring what's going on in the markets recently, in the the last few weeks here, It appears that the economy came back stronger than ever, but you write that the gains have largely gone to bosses and shareholders while worker wages have stagnated. So start off by telling us why the financial rebound hasn't benefited everyone and what impact you see this having on society and the future of business.
1: Thanks, Mark. I think the contrast that you highlight is a really important one. So what's happened since the financial crisis is that uh, CEO salaries have have gone up significantly. So um, the average CEO in the US, depending on whether you look at mean or medians, they earn over $10 million per year. In the UK, it's about four to five million pounds, whereas worker wages, they've been pretty flat. And you can also think of not just about workers, but wider society. We can think about perhaps these profits being earned at the expense of environment. We have this climate change crisis, and many people believe that businesses are exacerbating this rather than alleviating it. And sometimes you think these profits are at the expense of customers. So there's Wells Fargo, where fake bank accounts were opened. There's Volkswagen, where customers thought they were buying some environmentally friendly cars, but they weren't. And all of these give the idea that the gains to shareholders and to CEOs have been at the expense of everybody else. And this is why people think they've had enough. So they want to change the model of capitalism. And this is why, indeed, you have reactions such as Brexit in the UK, elections of populist leaders throughout the world, uh, the Extinction Rebellion, Occupy movements arguing we need a different way, because at the moment, business is only benefiting the elites in society and not everybody else.
0: Who's arguing that we need a new model? Is it coming from the bottom? up Is it throughout the entire system? So the CEOs who are making $10 million a year, are they reading the tea leaves and seeing that the future needs to change and be different? Or is it more of a populist moment?
1: If yeah, that's what's really interesting is that, is that you might think, well, it should just be the disadvantaged who should be arguing for a change. But actually, what's interesting is executives and investors themselves—they recognise that the model of capitalism may not be sustainable. For example, last year there were a number of CEOs who signed the Business Roundtable statement, arguing that the purpose of the corporation shouldn't just be shareholder value, but they need to create value for all of society and some leading investors like Larry Fink at BlackRock, you might think that he should want companies to just focus on shareholder returns, but he argued this year they need to contribute towards climate change. In prior years, he says that companies need to serve a social purpose. And, And why is this? Why do these people have this supposed epiphany? It might be the realization that actually, if you're BlackRock and you care about your own investors, the investors that you're investing on behalf of, they care about more than just financial returns. So anybody investing in BlackRock, they're investing for their future. But your future standard of living doesn't just depend on your income, it depends on is there access to clean water and is the temperature two degrees higher than it is now. So anybody who cares about the future, they don't just care about their financial future, but all of these non-financial factors as well. So if BlackRock is to be a good steward for their beneficiaries, they need to take these wider things into account.
0: I want to come back in a few moments to the business roundtable. I have some questions related to the integrity of that commitment and why now. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, you just said that investors care more about their returns. And interestingly, when the business roundtable statement came out, I saw a lot of chatter around, you know, don't undermine our quarterly income, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a shareholder mentality which said, hey, don't muddy the waters here with concern about any other constituencies other than us as shareholders. Yep. So clear that up for us. Do investors truly believe that they're better off when they're investing in all the stakeholders or Or are we still entrenched in this idea that investors really want to see just a pedal to the metal focus on profitability and, and stockholder returns.
1: Yeah, I think this is the crux of the issue. And that's why I, that's basically what I've been spending uh, the past 13 years of my career as a professor trying to study is to look at rigorous evidence. Do companies that care about their stakeholders, are they just fluffy companies that are distracted from the bottom line? Or are these companies which are actually creating long term shareholder value? Because you might think, well, if you're investing in your workers, you're building a brand with customers this ultimately benefits investors and so that's indeed why i've titled my book grow the pie is the evidence not wishful thinking but rigorous evidence suggests that companies that deliver more value to stakeholders also typically will deliver value towards shareholders so then why might it be that some investors have this mindset first they might just not be aware of the evidence, is that you might think that the fastest way to make more profits is to pay workers less and to charge customers more and that's why some companies act in that way. But the second and more nuanced argument is actually, while companies should have a responsibility towards wider society, that still should take shelter interests into account. And they might have been concerned that actually the business roundtable statement went too far in the other direction, is it shouldn't be that shareholder that deprioritized it still is a responsibility of a business to deliver returns for investors. It tries to ensure that if they are pursuing these purpose dimensions, they're pursued in a way which is still consistent with shareholder value maximization because there is still that responsibility.
0: Okay, You've already introduced the title of your book, which obviously has been mentioned in your introduction, but I don't want to get too far ahead of things here. So, sure. Our traditional belief, which you just mentioned, in business is that the value of any company is the fixed pie. And this idea influences all of us leaders to squeeze workers and ignore the environment because in your words, and this is your quote, the only way to get a larger slice of the pie for us is to reduce the slice of the pie given to them. So business is seen as a zero sum game. If a company serves society, this comes at the expense of profits. If it pays its CEO more, this takes from worker wages. As a result, the business and society are enemies, which is this really profound insight. So you call this a pie-splitting mentality, and I think everyone listening in can come up with the name of at least one known company that embodies this pie-splitting mindset. So tell us why you think this thinking is so inherently flawed today.
1: I think I'll start by saying why I think the thinking is so inherent to begin with, and then why it's inherently flawed. So why is it ingrained in so many people? Is if we think just many situations we are in are based on a fixed pie mindset. So when we're young, we play games. And if you play chess, if there's a winner, the other person has to lose. If you play poker, anybody who gains, that's a gain at the expense of everybody else. And indeed, if you think about wealth historically, wealth was was mainly in the form of land. So if somebody has land, then somebody else doesn't have land. So there are many situations in which the pie is fixed. But why is that thinking inherently flawed today in 2020? Is that many sources of wealth are not zero-sum. So financial wealth can be created or it can be destroyed overnight as we've seen with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And similarly, other sources of wealth, let's say natural capital, which is, say, access to clean water or a planet with a sustainable temperature, that's something which benefits everybody. So if we indeed will change its mindset and we think there's ways of creating value where everybody can benefit, then that's indeed what companies should be aiming for. And uh, what I try and do is a lot of research to show that actually the idea that the pie is fixed is not backed up by the data. So companies that seek to create value for society, be this by treating their workers better or being better stewards of the environment, ultimately they create more value for their investors. So just think of workers as an example, you might think that the fastest route to increasing your profits is to pay your workers as little as possible. And indeed, if you think about some of the inventions like the assembly line, why was that so successful? It got workers to work hard and keep up with the pace of production. But nowadays we're realising that if we give workers more than they need, they become more productive and more motivated. If you give workers freedom, they come up with ideas and those ideas can then lead to shareholder returns. So that's a different way of managing business is to see your stakeholders as partners, not as raw materials where the goal is to get as much out of them as possible.
0: Do you really think that that idea that we reap what we sow, that generosity is returned, that being more fair and seeing employees? as partners, is actually a philosophy that's fully embraced in business. I mean, where do you see that? How do you calibrate that in terms of, to the extent that you can possibly do this comfortably, say that within global business, major organizations, what percentage of them do you really think are on board with that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah, so here it's hard for me to give a percentage, but what I can say is what it depends upon. And I think one of the main things that depends upon is the um, horizon against which CEOs are evaluated. So if CEOs are beholden to quarterly earnings, then indeed they do have this pie splitting mentality because in the short term, the pie is indeed fixed. And if you are to invest in your workers, that's not going to be paying off. But in contrast, if you take companies where there's a longer time frame, then they tend to adopt the pie growing mentality. So just as an example, there was a systematic study looking at what happens when you grant CEOs longer-term pay. Well, what do you think happens to profitability? It actually drops, but it only drops in the short term. It rises in the long term. Why? Because the CEO knows that she's accountable for long-term performance. She's willing to take these investments where the payoff is in the future even if there's a short-term hit. And interestingly, those companies become more innovative. They deliver more value also to stakeholders, be it the environment, customers, communities, and in particular, workers. And one example of this is, let's take Unilever, which uh, has the sustainable living plan, which is to really take seriously their impact in society. When Paul Polman came into the job, He said, let's scrap quarterly earnings because that's not a true measure of the value of the business. That's gonna make me be short-termist. And also his pay package makes sure that he continues to hold shares in Unilever even after he's retired. So his horizon was longer than his own tenure and that's what led to him making more long-term decisions.
0: So how does that square with, and you would know this statistic better than I would, but there seems to be a rather significant migration from owning shares of stock for a long period of time to actually a rather short period of time. I don't know what the average is, but I think I remember seeing something like the average share is turning over in a matter of months as opposed to a matter of years, which would say that there's a misalignment to a shareholder's interest of wanting to have short-term income versus what you've just described in terms of organizations that are finding that their long-term share price is actually significantly greater. greater. Greater when they take the short term focus away. So, is it squaring up and can you square it up?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things which we need to be distinguished. So so what you're talking about, Mark, which is absolutely true in the data, is the shorter holding periods for investors. But actually, the holding period of CEOs, that's lengthening. So CEOs are now having to hold their shares for longer time periods. In the UK, for example, the new Corporate Governance Code changes the minimum holding period from three years to five years. So CEOs do indeed have a longer time frame. But let's go back to investors, because indeed, what you've raised is frequently seen is a concern that shareholders don't hold their shares for long enough. And if we could only force shareholders to be locked in for longer, maybe through a long term capital gains tax or something like that, then things would be better. That's actually not necessarily the case because that fundamentally mixes two things. One of them is the holding period of your shares. Do you hold them for one year, or three months, or five years? And the other is the orientation, is what is the basis on which you choose to sell your shares? Now, if you sold your shares after three months rather than holding it for five years, that's typically seen as short-termist. And indeed, what drove you to sell your shares was three months' earnings being low. That is really bad. However, there's other reasons why you might sell your share. So let's say that the company is just treating its workers really badly and you've tried to engage with them and they haven't changed. Then actually in that case, it's not a bad thing to sell your shares and reallocate your capital to somewhere else. It's just like sometimes customers may choose to boycott a company for bad behavior. Similarly, what's causing you to sell your shares is not short-term earnings, but something like poor workplace practices, I think that's a fair way to hold companies into account. So it's not always the case that selling in the short term is bad behavior by investors. Sometimes it might be, but sometimes it might actually be holding companies to account for not investing in stakeholders. So one example of that is Ford. So this is not just hypothetical. There's a company where this was the case that Ford hit record profits. I think it was in 2015 and 2016. But investors weren't impressed. They dumped the stock because it was not investing enough in self-driving cars and also electric cars. And that contributed to the CEO, Mark Fields, being fired. So that was actually a case in which actually selling the shares was holding to account a CEO who wasn't investing in the future.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm wondering in listening to you, if you think that boards – Boards of directors for these companies have gotten smart and have changed the compensation plans for CEOs so that their their stock ownership basically extends well into retirement or at least post CEO days. Yeah. I'm wondering if by changing the compensation, if word gets out that CEOs are really being incented, incentivized, whatever word you want to use, to have a much longer view, would a shareholder become less interested in selling shares if they don't hit a quarterly number or if whatever their quarter results are, would investors be less inclined to sell if the number was bad or at least not up to what they promised or what expectations were, knowing that in the long run, they're still going to be fine. In other words, are we going to be changing shareholder behavior here?
1: We may well do. Uh, And so while I say we may well do, I don't know of a study which has specifically looked at shareholder horizons versus CEO horizons, but there is a study which is pretty close to that, which looks at uh, the performance, the ESG performance of a company. So companies with stronger stakeholder performance, they do suffer less selling when they miss a quarterly earnings target. And so that's interesting because if you're a company which is delivering a lot of value to stakeholders, then maybe investors do recognize, oh, well, actually the true value of the company is more than just a quarterly earnings. It's in these other dimensions. And just going back to Unilever is that when Kraft made a takeover bid for Unilever, which was offering a quite attractive short-term financial gain, it was the shareholders who rejected it because the shareholders said, no, we understand that the value of the U- of Unilever is in the sustainable living plan and that's something which isn't fully captured in your takeover bid, so we're going to reject the bid. And what's really interesting is that sometimes when there's a um, takeover bid, it's the company... That needs to go out and defend itself, persuade the shareholders. But here it was actually the shareholders who came to Unilever's rescue. Because Unilever had engaged so much in investor communication and trying to show what the true value of the business was, it was the investors who made the argument for them. And that's why it took, I think it was two days before Kraft walked away. And this is interesting because we often hear the phrase shareholder capital, right? What would any finance textbook describe shareholder capital is? The financial money the shareholders put up in the company. But I would define shareholder capital as, as something else. It's not just the financial money that shareholders have put up, but the strength of your relationship with shareholders. You build shareholder capital through transparency, through meeting with them, through engaging with them, and through showing what the true value of the business is about. And that shareholder capital, broadly defined, is what defended Unilever from this takeover by Kraft.
0: So just to pin this first 20 minutes down here, reconfirm that you think that there's an evolution of thought from a shareholder point of view, institutional, retail, you name it, where people are looking at their investment with a longer term point of view versus what really has been for much of my lifetime, a very short term focus on what's gonna happen quarter to quarter. Is that where we are? And what do you think has ultimately driven that shift?
1: Yeah, I think there has been a significant improvement. So when I started my career as a Green um, Assistant Professor at Wharton in 2007, the first uh, conference I went to on socially responsible investing, there weren't the mainstream investors there. So the names are not going to be household names. And it was typically the manager of only a sustainable fund who would attend this. Nowadays, this is a major issue that people like Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock will care about. I sit on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee of Royal London Asset Management, which is a um, fund manager in the UK, and who comes to those meetings. It's not just the head of responsible investment, but the chief investment officer comes because he recognises that looking at a company's long-term value, its employee satisfaction, its customer loyalty, its environmental footprint, those are things which are financially material to all investors. So even if there's a fund without an explicit ethical mandate... If that fund's goal is to just create financial value, it should care about these intangible factors because these intangible factors do play out in financial value. We often think about non-financial factors, and I don't like that word because what the evidence suggests is that a lot of these supposedly non-financial factors do become financial in the long term.
0: Wow. Well, so tied to this epiphany, if you will, that broadening your view on who your principal stakeholders are is actually better business and that these conferences that you're going to are now more widely attended. I'm going to back up here and set up my question here. But When you and I first connected and you had produced this evidence that showed that companies that just fundamentally cared about their people, produced sustainably greater results. We'll talk more about those numbers in a minute. But that was what connected us originally uh, seven, eight years ago. And so I, at that time, personally had the view that there would be CEOs who would be so enlightened to realize, hey, we have to shift. We have to start moving in that direction. And now you've got your work, which validated it financially. And I didn't see it. And I was actually quite dismayed that there weren't more organizations that made the shift. And then I came to this understanding, and you can challenge this, I'd like if you disagree, that this would be the shift that we're looking for. And the change, particularly in terms of really, truly creating environments where people go to work and know they're working for a manager who has their best interest at heart. That ultimately, this is coming from the bottom up, where people are quitting jobs, leaving jobs in order to find a better place to work. And because of the business implications of having to hire and train and you know spend all that money that comes with that and lose talent and lose knowledge of the organization, that they're being forced to this change. So is it happening top-down and bottom-up? Is it happening at top-down at all? I'm wondering your just fundamental perspective on this. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. And you might think that's the standard
1: economist cop-out answer to avoid um, making <laughs> a strong did, statement. But I do think it is there, is that you need... Both the evidence, but you also need, I think, the movement from down below. So why is one not sufficient without the other? So I would have loved to have answered your last question by what's underpinned the switch. And I should have said research by myself and other academics showing that actually in the long term, if you're delivering value to stakeholders, that also help with shareholders. But even though that evidence is useful, because now it makes this a CEO-level issue if you're a company, Or a chief investment officer issue, if you're an investor. The challenge then is well, how do you actually put this into practice? So, my research shows that companies that truly, genuinely treat their workers better, do better. But even if a CEO knows that, she might not know, well, what are the best ways in order to ensure that my workers are better treated? So some of the suggestions may well indeed come from the bottom up. So some companies will have these crowdsourcing programs where they'll be asking, well, employees, well, what are the ways in which your um, working conditions could be better? And so sometimes it's the voice of the worker because it could be that somebody at the top might just not understand the struggle that these workers might have. So one example that I talk about it in the book is HSBC. So there was a cleaner called Abdul Durant who every day cleaned the offices of Sir John Bond, the chairman of HSBC in Canary Wharf. And there was one AGM where he stood in front of the company and he said... Sir John, I'm cleaning your office every day and I'm earning a measly £5 an hour. It's really difficult to send my five children to school. They go to school hungry without books. And then moved by this plea, Sir John Bond increased the wages by 28% the next month. Now, you would have thought, oh, do you need this bottom-up challenge? Shouldn't he just realise that more pay is going to make things better for employees? Isn't that what Alex's research and others show? Well, Well, perhaps to one degree, but he just might not have understood the extent to which higher pay was needed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, always workers want higher pay. But here, the consequences were that his kids couldn't go to school with books and food. And so, I think we do need pressure from both ends. And I think that with any problem, the solutions are often holistic. It's from many different directions. And so, that's why I think we do have this progress. It's not as fast as I'd like it to be, but there is progress based on some top-down realisation from managers that these financial material, but also some bottom-up push from employees making Managers do this, uh, I think, a little more urgently.
0: So thank you for that. I want to get back to the big picture of your book, which is to say, how do organizations fully thrive in the future that you're envisioning and the future that's going to happen whether you envision it or not? So this is the big idea of your book. And so I'm going to set this up again, even though we've talked about it. When we think of the purpose of companies these days, most of us are persuaded that the most dominant goal by far is to generate profits for shareholders. But in what you call the growing mentality, you argue that this must shift. Profits will no longer be the end goal, but will arise as a byproduct of creating what you call social value. So, this is a big idea of your book, and I want to have you start off by explaining what you mean by this, and how did you arrive at this? Thanks. So, profits still remain
1: important. So, companies are not charities. It's a responsibility of companies to deliver profits to their shareholders. However, what is the best way of pursuing profits? Is it by pursuing it directly or indirectly as a byproduct of creating social value? So, what would a direct approach to pursuing profits involve? Well, that would involve, before making any investment decision, you engage in a financial calculation. And that's indeed what finance professors like me have been teaching for the last 50 years. So, let's think about, do we want to build a factory? We'll look at the cost of the factory, and we'll look at the benefits. And what are the benefits of the factory? Well, we can calculate how many widgets that factory will produce in the future, how much you can sell each widget for. And therefore, your profit. And you're going to compare that against the cost. And if it's positive, you're going to go ahead and build the factory. So that's what a direct pursuit of shareholder value would involve. Now, that makes sense for a factory, but what's changed now? Is that the main assets are intangible assets. They're not factories, but they're human capital, their corporate culture, their loyalty with your customers. So let's try and think about applying that same decision to choosing to give employees some days off every year for volunteering. Now, in theory, you could try and calculate how many workers are more willing to be attracted to the company because you've got some volunteering days or how much more motivated they will be because they've had that time off. But there's actually no way to do that calculation. So if you pursue this instrumental, direct way of pursuing shareholder value, you wouldn't engage in volunteering days because there's no way to
0: calculate the benefit. And your suspicion is it would only cost you. Yeah, exactly, because these benefits
1: are so nebulous. But then if you don't do that, then you're going to scale back on many other investments and employees, Mm -hmm. such as, say, maternity or paternity leave or training and so on. And as a result of all of that, shareholder value will be destroyed in the long term. So the whole idea of pursuing social value first is that frees you from the need to reduce every decision to a mathematical calculation. And I think a nice analogy here is that in your personal life, you'll have some friends and colleagues, and there's some friends and colleagues who will help you, only if they think they can call a favor later. And there's others who are altruistic who will help you without expecting anything in in return. And actually, it's probably the latter who will become more successful later in life because, unexpectedly, later on down the line, they might need to call on a favor and then you're more willing to help them because they're just seen as trustworthy and nice people. Whereas those who only help if they expect something in return, they won't have the same reputation and they won't be helped in the future. So, what The evidence is trying to show is that things that you do for purely altruistic reasons to create value for your employees by giving them volunteering days, ultimately and unexpectedly, they do come back to help you in terms of shareholder value in the long term.
0: So the inference here is Adam Grant's work, isn't it? give and take in the way that you just referenced that? Absolutely, yeah. So he was my
1: former colleague at Actually, We started um, a year apart from each other, and I cite him a lot in my final chapter of the book, is that what um, Adam's research finds on a personal level is mirrored by my research at the company level. And again, this goes to show that, given that we have consistent findings, this does suggest that it's not a pipe dream, but something which is backed up by data.
0: That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Because I think, obviously, I think that is a remarkable book in the sense that it really truly proves that as long as you're taking care of business, as long as you're doing your own work, that givers are infinitely more successful in our society from a long-term point of view. But you're now applying this to organizations yeah. that the more generous they are, that they actually reap greater rewards. No one has ever said that here. So that's really fascinating.
1: What I like about Adam's book is, is it's also nuanced it tries to stress that givers should not just give completely in an unfettered way because you get burnout. So he thinks about sensible, sort of discerning ways to be a giver. And that's also what I want to try and convey in my book is that if a company wishes to serve society, it can't be all things to all people. It shouldn't try to give to the environment and customers and workers and suppliers and so on, but focus on materiality. So what are the main dimensions in which it can move the needle. So let's say you're a bank, you might think, well, the climate cost is really important. Let's try to ban our executives from flying to meetings. But actually, what's more material for a bank is financial inclusion, fair marketing and advertising, such as the Wells Fargo scandal. So with a bank, you might want to prioritize and actually try and focus on really moving the needle in terms of fair advertising and financial inclusion rather than trying to do everything. And that's in the spirit to Adam's giving, which is more discerning and nuanced rather than giving in such a way that you completely burn out.
0: That's another fabulous point, because I think what happens is, and I find this often, that when people hear an argument that we should be more caring, there's some people in our society that automatically go, oh, that's that's going to be abused, or you do that and people are going to take advantage of you, and they can't see that there's a greater balance being implied here. You know, you can't be giving all the time. But if you have a natural inclination to give when you're able to give, and that's the reputation and that's the reputation in the marketplace relative to businesses people are going to respond to that that's your point
1: yeah that's absolutely right yeah that's my point and i think well that's what adam also finds in a personal setting.
0: i love it let's talk about pyconomics i hope you're trying to market this yeah. so <laughs> you call the pie growing mentality pyconomics so i mentioned you know we were going to come back to this so i think it was September, October last year, there were about 160 of these top business roundtable CEOs. These are large mega corporations, and they committed to leaning in the direction of what you call Pyconomics by valuing all their stakeholders going forward, not just their shareholders. So my first question related to this is, was this honest? In other words, was there a real commitment from these organizations? Because some of the companies on the list have a reputation for doing just the opposite.
1: Yeah, so this is tricky for me to answer because I don't know the motivations of the people, so I think it would be remiss of me to say, oh, this was dishonest because I really don't know what was going through their minds. However, what I will say is that there could be arguments that this was marketing in order to try to restore trust in business and to preempt any regulation. So because of the concerns that we discussed at the start of the podcast, there are calls to regulate businesses more heavily. And so this might be seen as a preemptive move in order to try to fend off that regulation. So while I can't talk about what their true motivation was because I'm not them, what I can say is the evidence suggests that it should be Be genuinely implemented rather than just a PR move. So, even if what they're able to do successfully fends off the regulation, the evidence does suggest that genuine implementation of this does lead to long term shareholder returns. So, it's something that should be an honest and urgent pledge because if not, long term shareholder value will suffer. And so, what this means is that creating value for society is not worthy, it's not just about saving the dolphins, it's actually fundamentally good business, um, (laughs) just to think about your stakeholders for anybody with a long time horizon.
0: Well, you fully understood the nuance of what I was asking. It wasn't so much that it was dishonest as much as it was a PR and marketing and preemptive Mm. move. So, I mean, you rang every bell on that. And so I guess I look at this and I think, well, okay. so if these 160 plus CEOs have had the epiphany that they need to move in this direction, are there any signs that they're actually taking major steps to do it? So in some cases,
1: there are, and in some cases, they're not. So what I saw a couple of weeks ago was there are some shareholders making proposals to hold companies to account. I think Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and BlackRock um, for this. And and these companies rejected those shareholder proposals and the Securities and Exchange Commission and CUDUS them stopped that rejection. So it means that those shareholder proposals need to be considered at annual general meetings. So what I'm saying is that if you are a company who's actually sign this, you need to put your money where your mouth is and be held to account. Otherwise, it is something which I think will just backfire and reduce trust in business. So this is why I'm generally relatively sceptical about these sort of eye-catching initiatives in order to try to embed a societal orientation. So people looked at this and said, oh, this is a huge rejection of the old model of business and, oh, this is hugely radical. I think sometimes the most radical actions are just to quietly change things within a company. So this could be just try to think about, are you genuinely creating meaningful work within your company? How do you make sure that you're responding to the challenge of automation or low-skilled jobs? Are you changing the time horizon of the executive pay? And so on. So I think those are the dimensions I'd like to see progress in addition to these statements.
0: Who will hold them accountable? Who's going to police this?
1: So I think it should be shareholders in the first instance holding to account. Why? Because shareholders do have power in their say on pay votes and their votes of directors. And there are indeed some shareholders who do this, like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, who I know pretty well. They have a clear remuneration policy wanting CEOs to be large owners of their companies and continue to hold shares past their retirement. But it could also be customers and employees who hold companies to account. However, here the danger is that they may also practice the pie-splitting mentality. What do I mean by this? That sometimes people think that high CEO pay or high profits are achieved at the expense of society. So one example was Bob Iger of Disney last year, who was accused of being overpaid for receiving $66 million, which was over a 1,000 times the salaries of the average worker. But the nuance there is that that wasn't stealing from everybody else. It wasn't stealing from a fixed pie. That was a byproduct of growing the pie, because in the uh, five or so years in his job, the stock price had gone up six times. He'd created 70,000 jobs. So this wasn't at the expense of workers. This was as a byproduct for creating social value. However, it is too easy to look at a media headline and say, oh, this person has paid a lot, Let's boycott this company because this guy might be stealing from society when actually in some cases it could be as a byproduct of creating value. So if indeed people are going to hold companies to account that should be based on the pine growing mentality, are high profits as a result of creating value? If so, well, the company is actually then an honest company or is it as a result of destroying value and that we need to first ask that question first?
0: Well, one of your points here is that we shouldn't necessarily be critical of CEOs for having rather significant pay if they're truly generating greater income, greater wealth for the organization, right? And in your case, in the way you just described it, it's actually creating jobs and opportunities for people that didn't exist, so he should be rewarded for that. My question goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, which then means ignoring that Iger got this monstrous pay and you're arguing that he deserves it. Should we be more generous with people? Economically, is there an advantage to being more generous with people than continuing to keep them as close to market or even below market as a means of driving profits for an organization today.
1: Yes, there is a strong economic argument, and that is indeed the research that connected us all of those years ago, is that companies which do treat their workers well, not just in pay, but other dimensions like credibility, fairness, respect, and so on, they do deliver strong performance. And so there is a strong economic argument for not just giving workers the minimum you can get away with. And so one of the other things that I've been trying to push... Is the idea of giving shares not just to the executives, but to all employees. Because if a company does well, it's likely not just due to the CEO, but the wider workforce. And so the idea of broad-based pay schemes, so that everybody benefits from a growing pie, I think is important. And indeed, there is some data suggesting that companies with broad-based employee share schemes, they tend to do better as well. So again, by giving employees a slice of the pie, that motivates them and gives them stronger incentives to grow it as well, because if you do that, then you don't have the divisive them and us mentality, which is based on pie splitting. But the fact that they're in this together is that we're partners in the organization. Everybody's benefiting from a growing pie and that's what broad-based share schemes tends to engender.
0: Are you advocating for employees to receive shares as a benefit of, you know, like a profit sharing share of the company stock or are you advocating that when the companies perform well that they distribute that profit down to employees through a bonus?
1: I think just to give shares as part of the pay is a generally good idea because what that does is that just creates full alignment between employees and executives. Is that then executives can't be paid well without the share price also going up and benefiting the workers? Now, clearly, the proportionality is different. Is that for a top executive, you'd like the vast majority of their pay to be in stock, so they're held accountable for poor performance. For mm-hmm. sure, the average rank and file employee, you don't want that because then their income is just too risky. You'd like to have a large sort of fixed guaranteed salary component. But I do think it's fair to give some shares to workers as well, so that if the company does well, they also benefit. What's interesting is the research suggests that these share schemes are beneficial to performance only if they're broad-based. So you might think, well, if you're a company leader, let's only give the shares to the most high-skilled workers and not, say, to the rank-and-file employees or those in sort of less frontline jobs. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, you might think, well, let's give it to the R&D team, but not the paywall team. But increasingly in the twenty first century firm, right, a lot of these jobs are intertwined. And so the evidence does suggest that these schemes should be broad based throughout the whole organization rather than targeted at specific departments because only the former is gonna create the team mentality that we're trying to emphasize.
0: That's a really interesting point because you know, many organizations you have the sales people and they're making the most money because they're generating commissions for themselves, and then you have the people that are running the business through operations and and in many cases, they get diminished in the sales organization because, well, they're not generating anything for us. Yeah, but they're they're giving you the credibility of the deliverables that you can go out and sell. And I think we lose perspective on that. So that's really good. Alex, I want to ask you if you could do me a favor. This is a leadership podcast, obviously. And Before I go any further, I'd like for you to give us some examples of what you mean by social value. So the argument is you believe that companies need to be focused on creating social value and that a byproduct of that, obviously, as we've discussed, is going to be profitability and shareholder returns. But I'm not sure we really pinned down the social value component of this. So if you can give our audience an example or a few examples of what they can do in their organization to focus on creating social value so that they really truly understand it, then I have more questions related to that afterwards.
1: Absolutely. So what do I mean by creating social value? It's answering the question, how is the world a better place by my company being here? So, are there social problems that my company is able to address? Now, that sounds pretty lofty, so let's give an example. So, Vodafone, that's a UK telecoms company, they create social value through connectivity, through connecting people with each other. And one great thing they did, which created social value, was launching m pesa that's a mobile money service in Kenya, and that connected people because what that allowed people to do was to transfer money to each other using their mobile phones. And that was really critical because back then and maybe still now to some degree there wasn't a reliable banking system so people had to rely on cash and cash is something that could be stolen or could be forged so what Vodafone thought of is well how can we use our core competency which is communications to create social value and solve this problem of hundreds of thousands of people being unbanked and what the outcome of this was in I think in the first 10 years of its launch 200,000 households had been lifted. Out of poverty because of the impact that access to the banking system was able to provide to them. And so that's one example. Other examples, you might think, well, let's go to sort of just more mundane companies. Let's think of, say, IKEA. So there, their goal is to allow the many to experience what the few have. And so that's to make high-quality furniture available at low cost. And so what's interesting about that is that the two companies I've thought of, they are not pharmaceuticals companies. I could have chosen a company and say they create value through curing cancer or curing river blindness. But even a run-of-the-mill company, you might think, okay, telecoms that's a commodity. Everybody has mobile phones. No, they can create social value by being innovative with mobile money. And suddenly so you might think, okay, furniture, that's not curing cancer. But again, people's lives are quite a bit different if they've got nice furniture in the home to come back to. And they've created social value by allowing high quality furniture to be available at low like cost to people.
0: You know, just listening to you describe it, it's inspiring. To know that what you're doing is actually making an impact isn't just meaningful from a marketing and advertising standpoint, but it boils down to when you go to work, you know you're actually having an impact that's very positive on the world. You're helping people. And doesn't that inherently help engagement? It absolutely does. And I think this is
1: particularly important for the millennial generation, where a lot of surveys show, well, what do they want out of employers? Not just a good income and job security and advancement, but the ability to make a difference to the world. and this is something that I think about in my role as as a professor. So I define my purpose as a professor as the creation and dissemination of knowledge. So there's some days where I come into work, I teach six MBA streams. So I teach some weeks the same lecture six times. And so I could get bored by the sixth lecture and think, oh, right, I'm giving this lecture for the sixth time. The few jokes that I know, I've said those jokes <laughs> five times in, in, in a week. But I think, no, well, what my goal here is the creation. Creation, dissemination of knowledge, it's a huge privilege for me to come here and talk to the future leaders of this world, my MBA students, about a topic, let's say responsible business, that I find exciting and I get to disseminate knowledge to them. And then what does dissemination of knowledge involve? This is not only just talking about my research, but research by a lot of other people. And so what I've tried to do in the book and but and also other things I put on my website is to give a lot of exposure to research that other people are doing, because if my purpose is truly the dissemination of research that involves other people's research, not just the research that I myself do. And that's just really exciting is to tell somebody something that they didn't know previously. And that's what drives me to be really excited about this job after 13 years in this profession.
0: Totally wonderful. Another assertion you make in the book is that if companies consider only investors and ignore stakeholders, that they're going to lose their social license to operate. So that's profound. And you think some of them are already on the road to ruin because they've ignored this. So what do you think are the forces that will have this kind of influence? Like, why is that happening?
1: I think just customer power has been really powerful, is now more powerful than ever with social media. So if you think, say, Uber, when they had the Delete Uber campaign, I think it was a half a million customers deleted their accounts. So companies which are not seen to be creating value for society that can really have a large effect. We often think as citizens that we're powerless against big businesses, that business is something that's just done to us. We're passive bystanders. But I think things like the Delete Bill or the Boycott Volkswagen campaign show uh, what I call agency in the book is that citizens are agents, they can shape companies rather than just being shaped by. We've talked about customers, we've talked about work and the example of Abdul Durant of HSBC is that given social media and so on, the impact that individual citizens or workers can have on companies is quite large and therefore if companies are not going to take into account their responsibilities to wider society, the repercussions can be quite severe.
0: Alex, I'd like to take a brief break from our conversation here and ask you a few questions about your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. Our audience knows we call this the heartbeat round because all of the questions are brief, and we want you to answer each one instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I indeed am. All right, here we go. Question one, a well-known organization we haven't yet discussed that you greatly admire for their overall culture, purpose, and respect for employee well-being.
1: I'd say the New Belgium Brewing Company in the US.
0: A well-known organization we haven't yet discussed that ranks lowest in your mind in their overall culture, purpose, and respect for employee well-being.
1: Well, that would be uh, Sports Direct, a UK sports retailer.
0: One book you wish every leader in the world would read. A book called Black Box
1: Thinking by Matthew Syed. Why? Because that stresses the importance of hearing descending viewpoints, including viewpoints that differ from your own.
0: Your favorite kind of pie.
1: (laughs) I'd say fisherman's pie, something semi-healthy.
0: What's fisherman's pie? Oh, so
1: maybe this is just a British dish, which wouldn't be appealing to your audience, given British food doesn't have the best reputation, but it will have fish and prawns and so on. It'd be a main meal. I
0: was thinking about your dessert pie. Do you eat dessert pies in Britain? Most people do, but I don't eat dessert so
1: much just because I love doing like violent athletics and things like that.
0: Okay. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. I think soft skills will become more
1: important in the workplace. So these are things such as public speaking and time management and, and mental and physical wellness. These are things which are often underemphasized and in university, but I think will be important in the real world.
0: Great. Someone you consider a hero in your life?
1: I'd say uh, Stuart Pearce. So he started off being an electrician and a part-time footballer, and then rose to being captain of the England football team. He was my childhood hero when I was young.
0: Wow. If you were starting a business today, the cultural value you'd place highest on the list?
1: I'd say integrity, and that word means different things to different people, but i say in particular it means doing what you say you'll do. So if you say you'll do something, you follow through and deliver on that.
0: Skill improvement you're working on right now? Is to try not to get worked
1: up about things that I can't change.
0: The leadership trait that destroys the most careers?
1: It's closed-mindedness to other viewpoints, which is why I recommend the book we mentioned earlier.
0: Besides love, what does the world need more of? Encouragement.
1: We love naming and shaming people who we think have failed or done something bad, but I think naming and faming heroes is really positive and
0: important. I love that. I'm not supposed to comment on these questions, but to encourage means literally to give heart to people. So you rang the plug bell here. I appreciate that. A quote that captures your life philosophy.
1: This would be J.K. Rowling from her Harvard commencement speech. She says, it's impossible to live without failing at something. Unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. So push yourself out to your comfort zone and, and don't worry about failing because it's through that that you learn and you experience personal growth. Have you failed? multiple times yeah so my book got rejected from a number of publishers and i remember when i first started to ski i would think well let me try to make sure i fall fewer times than i did on the previous day but you can fall fewer times by skiing on the easiest slopes and that's not the point of skiing the point is to try to go for the challenging slopes and and if you fall then you learn why did i fall what was the technical error i made and through that you get better
0: excellent glad i asked that and finally even though you're still a very young guy, one piece of advice you'd give your younger self?
1: It's that things that seem really bad, are never as bad as they seem. So when I was young, I played chess for the England international chess team. And if I lost a game, I started playing when I was five, I would burst into tears. And that was just the worst that could happen. But if I look back over my life now, right, anytime I lost a chess game, or if I went to a bad meeting, or got a bad grade, or maybe didn't get a certain award, or got a paper rejected, those things don't really have much an effect on my life right now. So just to have this long-term perspective, that your career is a 40, 50-year arc, there will be peaks and there will be troughs you're not always climbing, and just failure is part of life.
0: That's absolutely brilliant perspective. Thank you so very much. I have a few more questions I want to get to, but those answers were absolutely wonderful. So thank you, Alex. That was a lot of fun. I want to change gears and ask you about, and I'm not really highlighting them specifically, but they are an example. Google apparently has now more contract workers then they actually have real Googler employees. And with this structure, as I understand it, non-employees earn a lower pay, they have far fewer benefits, less job security, different color badge, which may sound insignificant, but I think is actually significant. And contract workers are apparently forbidden from ever becoming full-fledged Googlers, even when their work excels. So how does this square with the Pikonomics philosophy.
1: So I think this is nuanced. And so the challenge here is, we say, apparently, I haven't, to be honest, studied Google in huge detail. So I don't know the extent to which that is true. But what I do know is that the data source I use for my study and employee satisfaction, the 100 best companies to work for in America, Google is often at the very top of that list, if not, at least it's in the top 10. So you're never going to have a company where everybody is treated really well. But what that does suggest is that the average employees are treated quite well as by the survey, and that is indeed consistent with the strong performance they've had. Now, does that mean that there's no room for improvement? Absolutely not. And if indeed what you say is true, it may well be that many employees are treated well, but a lot for the contract workers could be improved. So I would say that it's Google's responsibility to try to improve those conditions. However, to say that, well, this means that we should never offer contract workers, and I know that you're not saying that, that would not be a right conclusion because it could well be that had Google not been able to have this flexible structure, it may not have actually hired those workers to begin with. So what contracting does allow sometimes is it allows them to meet a temporary demand for jobs. And if they had to offer Something full time to all of those workers, they might not have done that. They might have gone to automation instead. However, once they have been there for a while, I completely agree with you, Mark. Then their challenge is to convert them to employees with the same status and benefits. And so while I do think contracting is a way of meeting some short term demands and being flexible, that shouldn't be abused. That shouldn't be a way of getting around your responsibility to people who are truly employed but just not a name. And Uber is just an example of a company that I think just took that perhaps to an extreme and therefore you can see the repercussions that they're suffering.
0: Thank you. Your intuition is rather impressive. (laughs) You just always seem to understand exactly what I'm asking, so I appreciate that. And by the way, I went to Google a few years ago and at that point they were really trying to decide whether or not this was the talent management people under Laszlo Bock's leadership when he was still there. And they were trying to decide if they were going to continue to contribute the data that is collected in order to be judged as a great place to work. And in the last, I think, three years, they decided to opt out And Fortune Magazine never makes a reference to the fact that no company has ever won the best place to work more times globally and in the United States than Google and their disappearance. But it's because I think they just decided that we already have so many people that want to work here and we have an internal knowledge that this is a great place. So we're just not going to try to publicize it any longer. So that's why they don't show up any longer, which then makes me wonder, what is the employee sentiment about working with? people who are not really their colleagues, you know, officially, and how long does it take for them to feel frustrated on behalf of their brethren because they don't have that opportunity to come into the organization, so... Just a little background on, sure. you know, where that is today, but also I appreciate your insight. I want to just remind everybody about the work that brought us together. You spent four years analyzing the stock performance of companies that made Fortune Magazine's 100 best companies to work for a list. And you found that, and this is, I'll just tell my audience, I saw the analysis extraordinarily rigorous. And your conclusion was that any organization that made that list of 100 best companies to work for delivered stock returns that beat their peers by an average of 2.3 to 3.8% per year. Per year over a twenty-eight year period, and you also write about the Parnassus Endeavor Mutual Fund, which invests only in businesses known for having high employee satisfaction. And since it launched in two thousand and five, it's returned twelve point two percent per year, compared with eight and a half percent for the S and P five hundred. So my question is. And maybe you disagree with the question itself, but why hasn't the stock market been faster to recognize the benefits of investing in organizations that have high employee satisfaction? And why hasn't business meaningfully improved employee engagement all over the world?
1: So I think it's because people have had the pie-spitting mentality for a while. It's that you might think, ah, this company has high employee satisfaction, but maybe they're paying their workers too much or not working them hard enough. So while I did write my paper initially in 2007 and got it published in 2011, it does take a while for people's mindsets to change because often they might have been brought up with the idea that great management techniques are to get as much as possible out of your workers. That's indeed why Henry Ford was so successful. If you even take it a great sports manager, right? A manager seen as great if the players are coming off the field like absolutely exhausted because you feel that they've given their all. And you might think the goal of a manager is to be like a sports manager is to squeeze as much out of your workers as possible. So I think that does take time to change because people have been educated under a different way of management. But I now do think that businesses are starting to improve employee engagement because indeed these are often CEO level issues. So if I look at the conferences, than I now speak at. If you just think about the people who, who come to these conferences are not just HR people, these will be people from the main management team will take these issues seriously. If I think about investors, I know one really leading investor here in the UK, she will ask companies about their people and, and she'll say that some CEOs will be able to answer that question and some CEOs will say, oh, I didn't know you were going to ask me about my people. Next time I'll bring along the HR director. And that's really telling to her. And that just is a really important investment criterion as to whether the companies are really taking this seriously. So I do think there's now movement. It has taken a while. I wish it could have been faster. But I think people do realize that actually in most companies, people are the most valuable asset. And let's try to scrutinize are these people being nurtured and developed?
0: Just to clarify the point that you just made, I think this was I read this in an article about you in the Financial Times. And the implication of that question was tell us about your people. Mr. or Miss CEO. And the CEO says, oh, well, next time I'll bring my HR person to answer that question. And the implication is the CEO doesn't know. So people really don't matter to that person. That was really the takeaway, right?
1: That's absolutely right. And I think this is one of the things where you're trying to get around greenwashing, which is a topic we've discussed previously, is who are the CEOs who truly believe this rather than their PR department putting something out? I think just the old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground approach of just speaking to management is really telling. Just like nowadays, right, you still interview people if you want to hire them for a job, even though you could use artificial intelligence to look at their CV and look at their social media. Interviewing still tells you a lot and some investors you can't evaluate a company from your armchair or with your Excel spreadsheets or have web callers just looking for information on the web actually just talking to CEOs and finding out are they the ones who can answer the question about their people or are they ones who need to delegate it to someone else I think that's far more telling than just doing a large spreadsheet analysis of a company
0: That's great Alex, I could talk to you for hours, and it is an extreme honor to have you with me right now. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I want to, before we go, you have a book that's coming out, and we've covered a lot of ground here. And I want to make sure if there's some incredibly important part of your book that we didn't get to in the discussion. Is there any final thought that you want to leave our audience with remembering that these are our leaders looking and needing information on how to manage their teams and organizations better?
1: I think it's to, to re-emphasize what we've said a number of times is that the idea of purpose is not fluffy, it's not an optional extra, we're not just doing this because we think society has problems that we need to address. It's also because it's just good business sense is that companies that deliver value to stakeholders are more successful in the long term. So this should be a CEO level issue. We've never used the word corporate social responsibility in this podcast, and I think that's important because CSR is often seen as something, Something that could be delegated to a CSR department, whereas this is something that a CEO should think about, is how is the world a better place by my company being here? And one thing that we mentioned briefly in passing, but I'll re-emphasize now, is the importance of purpose being focused, is that a company can't be all things to all people. Often a CEO might think, well, it's actually daunting if I need have responsibilities towards wider society, how can I get started? But I just emphasize that just like It's my management framework or a framework for personal purpose. Your ambition as a person can't be to be a doctor and a firefighter and a teacher and to help a homeless shelter. You're going to focus on one of them. And similarly for company, let's think about, well, what is the way in which we can really move society? But what should we do less of? in order to allow us to focus on the things that are going to be moving the needle. And so going back to the old example of the bank, maybe even though climate change is really important, then we should do so as much as we can there, the first among equals for us is to make sure that we are selling our financial products fairly and transparently, and that's what we're going to focus on right now.
0: Alex Edmonds? Thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Mark. It was a huge pleasure to be on the show. It's cocktail hour for you, I think, right? Five, yes, five thirty. So, cheers. Great. Thanks very much. Mark. Before we go, I want to acknowledge what is obvious that we're living through extraordinary times in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Business has been turned upside down, the stock market has tanked, too many jobs to count have been eliminated or sidelined, and normal day-to-day living has been really upended. And so, my final word here today is to encourage all of us to continue to display everything heart-related, empathy, compassion, kindness, optimism, grace, and trust in your fellow man. We're only going to get through this through collaboration and cooperation, and if there's any silver lining to all that we're enduring, it's that a shift in our collective consciousness is occurring that is bringing the best out in all of us. And this massive shift, I believe, will endure when the good times return. And speaking of the good times, I hope you'll keep me in mind when your organization resumes having employee meetings. I don't know when that's gonna be, but I would love to come speak about the future of workplace leadership and leading from the heart when the sun shines again in our world. I wanna thank my wonderful team who makes this podcast possible. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Mirjana Novkovic, Josh Richard, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you so very much for listening. Stay well. Signing off for now.